got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys and girls. Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nucky spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Say hello to my little friend. What's your name, man? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Wednesday, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, Sandos and the sidekick as we preview ETSU men's and women's basketball. We'll talk a little mid-major top 25 and talk a little baseball. Opening day Friday. Thomas Stadium, I'm sure you're going to be there. I will be there. I know you are. You're broadcasting, actually. That's right. Head Coach Joe Panucci going to join us in segment three after our basketball talk and then mid-major top 25, a full, complete, and two-week version since we skipped it last week. All right. Well, in fairness, we're just going to do the most previous ranking, correct? Yeah, that's right. I'll just make sure the way you worded that. One after another. Okay, let's make sure. A two-week edition, you know, catching people up. I'm not going to go retroactive to post-active. I'm not a smart man. I just want to throw that out there. Me either. If I were to ask you, because you know I'm a day counter. You know, I love my days. (laughs) Love your days. How many days has it been since the Citadel has picked up a W? Ooh, I would say I actually know what day it was. It's been roughly like 48 or something like that. 56. Ah. 56 days, and it was kind of odd because they had won five of six. The only loss was to ETSU, and right after ETSU, they routed off three straight to make it five of their last six. It was a triple overtime win at Longwood, and then the wills have just come off. Uh, they've lost, what is that, 12 straight, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve straight. Yes, my math is correct. So they've lost 12 straight since there. They've had a couple things go wrong. Number one, Hayden Brown has not played since, um, or he tried to play a few minutes after the ETSU game, but he he's out just six games this year. Mm. He's played under the 30%. He's not played past the halfway point. It seems to me they may try Got to get figure, the, the right? medical redshirt at that point. Eddie Davis the third has been dismissed. He's no longer on the team. He was a uh, top five scorer for them. And uh, just missing a few. And they got a couple other injuries. So they are really struggling. There are guys in the top eight right now that saw little to no action in the first go-around versus ETSU. So just a depleted Citadel team, to say the least. And, of course, it's been, as Coach likes to say, it was last year, uh, which it technically was since it was in December of 2019. And ETSU uh, picked up that 96-84 win, and two guys went bonkers. No Jerome Rodriguez, but he had a career day, 26 points, 16 rebounds. And then Trey Boyd, a career high at that time for him, 25 points on five of nine from three. Three other Buccaneers were double figures in that game in that offensive onslaught. Davian Williamson with 16, Lucas Gassant with 11, and 14 minutes of action. He probably leads in his career points per minute versus the Citadel. That was, a, I think, last year he had 12 points in 10 minutes. So, for whatever, you know, he, again, it's a tough matchup. You're not going to see a lot of Lucas, I don't think, in this contest. And last guy was Isaiah Tisdale. He's 5'8 from the free throw line, 10 points. But ETSU rolled to that victory, 96-84. Citadel uh, made a little bit of a charge late in that game. Hayden Brown, who we mentioned, he had basically 12 points in the first half, tweaked something in the second half, really didn't play, and a career high for Caden Rice. So, at the time, there were three career highs in the same game. That's very interesting to see. Here's Coach Forbes of the Coaches Show Monday night. Tremendous impact, and that's something that we have really, really, really worked on with him, and he's outstanding. He makes good decisions. I thought Davian. if you go back to the Chattanooga game on Wednesday night, he, he made great decisions in the when he got in the lane, not just scoring but making passes for, for easy baskets. Davian. Um, it's just a different dimension for our team that we need, and he's, really, he's the best that we have. Bo's good at it. Tisdale's good at it, but – Davian is faster than both of those guys, quicker, and he's got great touch around the around the basket, and he can make good. He makes good decisions. So, um, I think it's something up for us moving forward 
that he has to continue to stay what we like to say attack mode. We want him attacking at all times with the ball in his hands. And you're right, against zone, he can't just stand out there, shoot threes, and pass the ball around the perimeter. You have to penetrate the zone. You have to, you know, slice cut the zone, and he's good at that. Talking about Davian Williamson versus the zone, how can he affect the game tonight? Well, and I think that's going to be very important. I know for a fact that they were talking about cutting because I was in the team hotel before the Mercer game, and Chris Forbes, coach's son, who's a GA, he does a lot of the video work, uh, was talking, I believe it was B.J. Mackey as a scout. And I remember B.J. saying, give me all the plays that we got the ball to the middle of the zone because we were very efficient in what to wear. And I remember he threw out the stat. I don't remember off the top of my head, but – <clears throat> whatever it was, they're very efficient, as we're going to show. Well, part of that is Tisdale and Williamson getting in the gaps, getting to the middle, and then you get sort of a three-on-two situation. So how will ETSU be able to work against that, which the Bucks have not seen zone in quite some time? And, again, this is just a situation where they were already trying to muck it up, they being Citadel, but if they're at full strength, now they're not in full strength, you know you're going to see a little bit of man-to-man, two-three zone, a little one-three-one, the three eyes, I like to call it, the, the the triangle and two. You will see probably a mixture of all of those just to try to keep a team off balance. Now, it's not been as uh, successful as you would imagine because of all the injuries, and you look at their plus-minus um, as far as scoring differential, it's only two and when you include all the games. But then more apples to apples because they play three non-division ones. But when you look at um, the scoring margin – they're minus 12 in the league. They're giving up 82 points, scoring right around 70. So it's going to be tough. Speaking of injuries. There's nothing to update. I mean, until he's able to run and cut without pain, he's not going to play. You know, and he's not to that point yet. You know, he might be able to do some minor, get out of the boot maybe this week a little bit, maybe in the pool. I don't know. We'll see. I hope. That's something that we're working towards. But I hate it. You know, and I hate it for our fans. I know you want to know, and I – I obviously would sleep a little bit better at night if he was playing. And I, especially just for him, you know, to come back and be the, one of the premier players in our league and have a chance to have a tremendous senior year and then fight this terrible injury is, uh, as I'm sure it's disheartening for him as it is for all of us. And so um, we just got to keep, you know, praying and hoping that he gets better and we can get him back out there. The Bucks obviously missed Jerome Rodriguez. This specifically important with this game because, as you talked about, 26 points, 16 rebounds, really one of the more gigantic games you'll see in terms of efficiency, time on the floor versus production, and just crashing the glass. It's the most rebounds, 16 against Citadel for Jerome Rodriguez that ETSU has had this year against any one opponent. Played 26 minutes, got those 26 points, 13 of 15 from the field, and eight of his 16 rebounds were offensive. Now, on the flip side of the coin, you also mentioned this. Trey Boyd, 25 points. Davian Williamson, 16 points. Lucas Cousin, 11 points. You're not often going to see three players play off the bench and combine for 52 points and have those specifically be the only three players that you play. Sometimes you'll see benches combine for that many points, but when you're playing eight guys, to have 52 of your 96 points from the three off the bench is really something special. Yeah, I think that's, uh, again, the, the depth, but the quality of depth. And I, I will say this about Drummer Rodriguez real quick. He was not wearing a boot uh, yesterday. Good. I was over at practice. Now, that don't anybody read into that. He's not playing tonight. I can go ahead and tell you he's not going to suit up and play tonight. But he's at least out of the boot. So, he was not on Monday. He was on Wednesday. So, we'll see how that seems to progress. Uh, now, Pat Good will be back. So, you have that going for you. He was a guy that was able to get minutes. I, I think um, – you know, Vonnie Patterson is going to – he played 18 minutes in that contest the first go-around. My guess is he will see more time uh, in today's contest because Lucas Casson, who's only been averaging about 12, 13 minutes versus Citadel, a lot more minutes versus everybody else, but my guess is he's not going to be able to, to get on the floor as much. So if they do that and no Rodriguez, who gets that playing time? I think Bonnie Patterson. And I think Charlie Weber is going to get some time today as well. Here's Coach on the matchup. This is the interesting time of year, and this is what I spoke to the team about today. You're either going one way or the other. You're either going up or you're going down. If you're on your way up, then you have you have to keep playing well. And the teams that aren't playing well, they only have – they don't really have anything to play for other than just to ruin your season. And so that's kind of how I look at it is that uh, Citadel's not going to win the SOCON uh, mathematically. But – they could prevent somebody from winning it, which happened a couple years ago. So 
Uh, we have to be ready to go. We haven't played them since, as I told Kenny Hawkins today, we haven't played them since last year because it was December 4th, 4th of 2019. Yeah. You know, we have to be locked in. And different style of play, as you know. They're not playing quite as fast, probably, as they played in the past. In fact, VMI shooting more threes than they are this year. And so we'll have to be ready. Different defenses, junk defenses, presses, all those type of things. And, you know, last time we were down there, you know, Jerome played and had 26 and 13. Uh, monster night. We're not going to have him, so we, we're going to have to get it from production from other people. Good math by coach. He did my math. They can win it. Well, they can't win it. Well, mathematically, I guess they can't win it, but they can do it. <laughs> I mean, they're only 10 games back of folks. So, yes, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they – Don't they, think they're winning it. I don't think they're winning it, but I enjoyed that he had to he had to circle back using my math skills to figure out that, well, realistically, they, they cannot win it. But it is correct. They can have a say in who does. Here's what I'll say. And we talked about Eddie Davis being gone, and you mentioned the injury to Hayden Brown. Even before Eddie Davis departed the team – they were still struggling mightily. And really, since the ETSU game, it's been a struggle against teams that have presented any kind of resistance at all. Those three wins you mentioned, let's qualify them all by saying, yes, Longwood, you mentioned the triple overtime. Probably shouldn't take you triple overtime to beat Longwood. Um, now, obviously, a Big South team these days haven't been uh, D1 for very long. And the other wins were against Carver, where 91 put up over 100 against them. Piedmont put up over 100 against them, and then put up over 100 against Longwood. Did only lose That wasn't three overtime. That wasn't three overtime, so you have to qualify that also. Did only lose to NC State by 20, but I really think the way their conference season started, outside of just the personnel issues that they dealt with, you have the game against Sanford, and that's as close as they've gotten. You can't get any closer to winning a conference game. And Logan Padgett, you know, Scott Padgett's son, kid's son, that free throw, 69-68, to win the game with like a couple seconds left. And they were so close right in it, trying to build on that momentum, get off to the right start in the Southern Conference season. And then since that game and a couple of other really tight ones early in the conference season, I think they only lost to Western by four the next game. And then we're in like a three-point game after that. Ever since then, it's been a real struggle. They've only had, I think, one game in the last six has been separated by less than double digits – or by less than single digits. Yeah, I, I mean, they have in – the last five games they've had one time they got to 71 in a 76-71 loss to Mercer. That was the only tight game they played. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, out of the last uh, six games, actually, because they went 69, 54, 56, 71, 68, 64. So, ETSU, I think I read the stat where th- this year they're 15-0 when they hold teams to under 70 and uh, something crazy like 55-2. and uh, So, obviously, ETSU – if they can hold where Citadel's been scoring, then it should be a win for ETSU. So I think the only thing is, is if we saw a few years ago, or maybe the Bucks weren't as serious, that was a, and of course you remember you didn't really know Desante Bradford wasn't going to play, and that sort of started the downward spiral of that squad. But I I don't see that happening today. I think the Mercer loss has kind of refocused some guys. I think Coach gave them the stat about leading in halftime and uh, uh, situations or uh, you know that's I'm sorry that was the 55 and 2 when yep. ETSU is leading at halftime they're 55 and 2 with a loss UNCG in the championship game and then Xavier which uh, nobody wants to talk about that anymore but yep. but that's it so if they can get out to a good start hold them under 70 I think it's going to be an ETSU win and we sort of talking hopefully about a 15 20 point win come Friday preview in VMI and honestly the game the first time around wasn't really as close as the final score indicated. The Bucks were up by 21 pretty deep into the second half and then Citadel won on a bit of a run to make it that 12-point game. The rebounding was absolutely huge. 45-20. to 20. I mean, that's insane. I've never seen a team get 20 rebounds in a game. Honestly, I have not. I've looked at a lot of box scores, and I've never seen as few as twenty. And the Bucks were plus twenty-five. Now, sixteen of those were for Rodriguez, but there's plenty of options to go and crash the glass. Do watch Caden, Caden Rice, thirty on eleven of sixteen in that first matchup. Uh, hasn't scored more than twenty-one since, but has been consistent, double digits in seven of his last eight. And uh, just to wrap up that point about the beginning of their conference season, it was one point against Sanford, four against Western Carolina, then at Wofford they only lost by two. And so three games like that to start your conference season after it started to look like you were building momentum. I'm not surprised they've tumbled down and lost uh, the 12 in a row that they have. Uh, Three-point shooting, I think, is going to be big. They took 45 threes against NC State, haven't taken more than 30 in any of their last eight. And each of their last three opponents have hit 40% or better 
from outside. Only twice in non-league play did opponents do that. It's now five times in the conference season. ETSU's done it seven times this year, 40% or better, and they're 7-0 and when doing that. 33% or less from outside, they lose. All four of their losses, 33% or less from outside. So make sure to watch Beyond the Arc. It's been something that ETSU's excelled at both ends of the floor this year as opposed to last year when they struggled to defend the three-point arc a little bit. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you a middle-of-the-week bold prediction. <laughs> Patrick Good returns. Five threes or more. Five threes or more for Patrick Good. Put it in the book. Put it on the board. Chalk it up as a W, especially for ETSU. If Patrick Good can do that, it's going to be a cakewalk to victory. All right. Uh, don't forget, 630. Airtime, 7 o'clock tip. ETSU versus the Citadel in a uh, midweek bold prediction we normally don't all right, when we come back, let's talk Thursday. ETSU women's basketball. Don't forget, Joe Panucci will be on the other side of that. we still got to go over the College Insider mid-major top 25, but we'll talk ETSU and Wofford. Thursday night basketball for this time. Out to your Worms and sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Sanders and a sidekick back with you as we turn our attention to head coach Brittany Zell and her women's squad on the road. They've got two straight road affairs, Thursday against Wofford, Saturday against Furman. We'll talk about Furman on Friday. The first matchup uh, for ETSU, not well in Brooks Gym as uh, Wofford with a 76-47 win. Just two ladies in double figures, Micah Sheets with 14 and Tiana Kimbrough with 10 and ETSU shot 38% from the floor just 16.7% from beyond the arc in that contest it's almost too painful to rehash because it was Brittany Azell's birthday it's the largest loss in Southern Conference history under Coach Azell so all of her what 73 games at that point in the SoCon largest loss uh, and Wofford was a team that entering, let's see, three matchups ago, the Bucks had beaten 24 of 27 times in their program's history. Now, this is a much improved Wofford team. We talked about it before the first matchup. We'll revisit it and reemphasize it and bolster it here because truly you look up and down their starting lineup, and yes, maybe their bench is a little thin, but you look at what the bench did in the first matchup and you say, is it that thin? You know, Nia Lutz. Elena Polanco, Mary Martha Turner, Martha Turner, excuse me, Alexis Tomlin had nine points in 17 minutes. Lauren Cook, someone that missed a lot of last year with an injury, had six points in 14 minutes. You know, Lutz had eight points in 22. And then there's obviously the quality in the starting lineup. And I think Jimmy Garrity, head coach of Wofford, is finally feeling a little bit of breathing room uh, when it comes to you know a solid result that he knew he was going to get at some point the last few years he just had injury after injury and he's got to be kind of you know rubbing his eyes looking second at the score sheet looking at his injury report and thanking his lucky stars because he hasn't had any luck the last couple of years and now it seems like he's getting all of it this starting five of Wanick, Booker, McDavid, Hatton and Green has been together 119 of the possible 120 starts the only time that they haven't been together uh, was when Hatton missed a game and Alexis Tomlin stepped in and she uh, started the one game that Hatton did not start but aside from that every other game the starting five has been together and it's a starting five with plenty of quality Jamari McDavid is a mega athlete Cairo Booker is uh, along with Deja Green a couple of really good distributors Booker's a really great defender as well Chloe Wanick we know she had a really tough game last time out for Wofford, um, not against ETSU, just in their last game. Wanick did have a team-high 15 against the Bucs, also had three rebounds, two assists, and two steals. Um, and then Hatton is someone that is kind of a sneaky stretch five, but also goes down low and blocks a lot of shots. She's second in the league and blocks to Ty Kimbrough. So there's a lot of positives this year for the Terriers that they've gotten just in terms of people being around 
that haven't been in the past, and Jimmy Gary's made the most of that, right? It, it seemed like Wofford was going to make the jump, and especially lately, springboarded by that win over ETSU, they have. They won five of their last six. And it's interesting. They lead the league in scoring, league play. In league play, they lead the league in scoring. Do you know nobody in the league's averaging 70? Sounds about right. Golly, so I think Wofford <laughs> overall is only averaging like 70.3, and that's tops in the league by three points. Well, they lead the league in scoring. They're mid, midway as far as defense, but scoring margin, they're plus seven. So they do a good job of at least running away and hiding in the games that they do pick up victories. And so I, to me, it's all about the first half. If, if ETSU hangs in the first half, give themselves a shot in the second half, especially coming off the, the last defeat at home, I think it's going to be important for ETSU to do that. I think the other thing is, and I know they're not particularly a great, uh, and ETSU doesn't attempt a lot of threes, but I think, you know, getting the free throw line, obviously a must. But the second thing is I think they're going to need six or seven threes in this contest to help them out. I think three, a couple, you know, six, seven, I don't think you have to go crazy because I don't know that they can. But if they got six or seven threes, they got to the free throw line 20 or more times, I think they got a good shot in the contest down in Spartanburg, and I think you can wash away the memory of that first one. That'd be fantastic, and they'd like to because after the 29-point uh, loss, then a week later it was Sanford that uh, won by 34. Now that was a road contest, and that's exactly what this is, and it's been a Wofford team that has been good at home, 10-4. and four. Uh, They've won 13 of their 20 since they lost four in a row to start the year, and we mentioned the five of six that they've won coming off of that ETSU game being the first in the span of five of six. The last four have all been separated by six points or less, so they're playing close games. I talk about them making a jump, but some of that has just been sealing the close games. Last year, because they only had a limited amount of bodies, the fourth quarter really jumped up and bit them a number of times uh, throughout the conference season and took what could have been a year like they're having now and turned it into kind of a middling 500 middle of the conference type year, something that uh, Wofford is pretty sick of having. And right now they enter the contest six and three. So uh, while those last four have all been separated by six points or less, Three of them have been wins. A five-point win over UNCG, that's obviously a quality W. They're charging for uh, a league championship, trying to be one of those four or five, sticking in there until the end. They won by four over Furman. Did lose by one to Mercer, and that's one I want to talk about. Uh, also a six-point win over Sanford, and of course Sanford was six and one before losing their last couple. They're right there at the top two. But in the Mercer loss, and this is a strange trend to see from the Terriers and we know it's a long season and you're going to have your nights where you just don't shoot the ball well that's what it was for Wofford against Mercer 31 percent from the floor three of 21 from outside but they've sprinkled in a couple of those outings throughout the year the league opener against Sanford 29 percent from the floor three of 22 from deep Kansas you know that's excusable right you're playing a power five team but 11 of 38 on two-point field goals 32 percent from the floor overall App State 31 percent from the floor three of 14 from three Gardner Webb 31 percent from the floor two of 19 from three so those are games number three nine 14 17 and 23 of their year and those are five of their 11 losses I don't think you can count on that <laughs> you're not going to go out and say well let's just hope that they shoot 32 percent from the field like they have pretty much done those five games that we talked about and you'd have to get pretty lucky to have that now of course you can contribute to them having a tough night if you play solid defense if you you know make sure to attack them um, in a more I think solid way a more together way than you did uh, the first time around because really it was just a very consistent calm performance from the Terriers in that 76 to 47 win you also have to make sure if there's one thing I think defensively you have to do uh, while you always love to get players in foul trouble uh, that's always a top of the list um, say that that isn't working you're not able they're defending without fouling well which is something that against Mercer they did not do uh, as a matter of fact which I'll talk about a little bit more in a second but you have to step out you have to step out and not let them get open looks from beyond the arc and that means you can't collapse on people you're not supposed to collapse on. You have to know your scouting report. You have to know who is going to be an offensive threat and who isn't. And that's one of the tough parts about this team is they have a lot of different players that can do damage on a given night. This is a, a good-on-good good situation, too, where Wofford's the best uh, turnover margin team in the league, and they were plus 13 against ETSU in the first. Uh, speaking with defense and some of the thought process you're going with, I think if ETSU can force turnovers and stay even, 
you know, I don't even know if they have to win the turnover battle, but if they can stay even because ETSU is so good uh, when they're able to make some plays in the open floor, get some easy baskets that way, I think part of knowing your scouting report is knowing, you know, when can you try to take a steal. And I'm not saying gamble all the time because if you do gamble all the time, then some of the things you're talking about with the clean shots, all that is going to happen. But you look at the turnover margins and how good really Wofford is at hanging on to the basketball and then uh, assist-wise, you know, they were one for one against ETSU in the first matchup, 12 assists, 12 turnovers. And that's sort of where they thrive is not turning the ball over. It's not so much, and I know ETSU had 25 turnovers, it's not so much that they're forcing a lot of turnovers. They just do a better job of not turning the ball over themselves. So I think that's got to be a key point on the defensive end, knowing, uh, again, the scouting report and other things that have to go on because they're going to have to create some things to go their way, whether that's hitting shots, whether it's creating turnovers, rather – I would say foul trouble, but you still look up and down. I mean, I mean, Wofford's, you know, averaging playing, I think, nine players, solid minutes. I know they played like 11 or 12 in the game against DTSU, but I think, you know, if you look at the minutes played and significant minutes played, they got about nine ladies they rotate in. So it's not a, you know, they're obviously deeper in ETSU. Now, it can be who you get in foul trouble. You know, can you get um, McDavid in foul trouble? You know, can Wanick get off the floor for any particular reason? Although I don't think she's fouled in the last like eight games, it seems like. She just doesn't commit a foul. But, you know, Lily Hatton's another one maybe you could get in foul trouble and off the floor. So I, I think it's a it's a tough uh, road to hope for ETSU because Wofford's playing really good basketball right now. They finally climbed back into a, a like a eight-way tie for first or whatever the heck's going on up there. So um, I, I think it's important for ETSU to knock down some shots they don't normally knock down get to the free throw line, have to force turnovers, hang on the basketball. And like you said, you cannot leave the people you know who are going to knock down shots wide open. What do you think is the point total if ETSU has their best chance to win the game? Right around 110 between the two teams. Keep it to the 50s. Try and keep it below 60. Because I'm not sure you're going to win a shootout with Wofford. And well, I'm going and, somewhere with And both this. teams struggle to get to 70, so so you're not going to get there. I, I think it would be a 55-52 game. Well, and so How's let's that? look at the blueprint because Mercer beat him 53 or 54 to 53. 107 points, 55-52, okay. yep. that's 107 too. So yep. we're right about on the same wavelength. I don't know how they did it, quite honestly. They shot 29%, missed all of their threes. And by the way, for anyone that doesn't think UTSU men's basketball's three-point streak is impressive, and I know it's women's versus men's basketball, whatever, it's still basketball. Mercer's not made a three in three of their last five games. Well, ETSU's done it in 1,026 straight. Just a crazy stat to pull out. Anyway, Wofford sent Mercer to the line 27 times. So, as we're talking about who you can get in foul trouble, maybe more importantly, just getting fouls on the opponent, regardless of who it is, and driving to the basket and making Wofford make some mistakes and sending you to the line for free throws. That's what ETSU has done a lot of the year when they've had success offensively. And that's what they need to do against Mercer, too. Somehow, and it didn't take a lot of fouls, Wofford fouled Mercer 16 times, and they got 27 free throws. A pretty incredible ratio. Mercer held onto the ball, so they didn't turn it over. You talked about turnovers. Only nine turnovers, and Wofford got just three points off them. Wofford turned it over 15 times. Mercer got 12 points off. And then Wanick, we talked about the bad game, one of six from the floor, three points. That's her second fewest points since her freshman season. So, again, not something you can count on there, but turnovers, free throw shooting, and defending the arc. The fact that Mercer somehow did not make a three, pretty incredible. Wofford is not a team that is going to go an entire game without making a three. And when they get really hot from outside, they're pretty unbeatable. 6-0 and when shooting 50% or better. They're 7-11 and when they don't shoot 50% or better from outside. So turnover game. Try and drive, get to the basket, draw contacts, throw your body into somebody because it seems like Wofford, once you're down there, is not one to shy away from contact, and they'll send you to the line if they have to. And if you can do those couple of things like Mercer did, while it seems impossible looking at their stat line that they somehow won the game without making a three and shooting 29% from the floor, there's other things that you can do in order to generate offense, to change the game, flip it in your favor, and one thing to watch before we move on to head coach Joe Panucci, uh, Jackie Carmen has still not come back. Speaking of good three-point shooters, one of the best three-point shooters in the conference. She missed the first game against CTSU, has been out since last February. About three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, I was told that it was kind of a day-by-day, week-by-week thing. She could come back tomorrow or it could be another month. Well, we're getting right about to the tail end of that month. And so 
unless they're going to use a red shirt, which at this point, you know, maybe it's worth it, but you're also right in the mix for a conference title. And everything is, for Wofford right now, forming into one of their most special, if not their most special season as a program. So do you infuse a little bit of new life into that depth that they otherwise, in terms of top-end players at least, don't really have? Very tempting, I'm sure, for Jimmy Garrity, but then... Are you playing with fire a bit? And because she hasn't been in for such a long period of time, would it take too long to catch up? Would the offense not be able to adjust? Would you be introducing something that could uh, make things crumble and not flow as smoothly? So very interesting balancing act that he's going to have to think about when either if Jackie Carmen is free and available and is faced with that decision, whether it's bringing her back or saving her for next year. Um, I don't know, especially considering all of the – things that have been out of his control in terms of injuries and um, players just not being able to get on the court. Uh, you know, this seems like the year for Wofford. If they want to go and do it, that the conference is wide open. They've got the personnel too. You're not going to have Chloe Wanick next year. This is her last year. Do you try and get her a conference title? Um, something to think about if you do hear the name Jackie Carmen tomorrow. Uh, I think it would be a semi-shock, but she also just might be ready. You know, she might be ready to go, and they might just be considering what to do with her. Is it odd that she's not on the stat sheet? No, she hasn't played it all this year because of the ACL injury from last year. Yeah, then, I'm, then my guess is, my guess is you sit her. You see where I'm getting at? Though, I do, right? I do. I, it's I tempting. Was, I was, I was uh, well, and that's why I was, I was giving it a look. You know, there's as a team, they're shooting 36 percent from beyond there. So let's see what they are in conference. They're shooting right about the same, about 35. So I just, really solid number. I mean, it is. It really is tempting. And, and we've saw it before. We saw Tommy Hubbard. ETSU had to burn a red shirt with Tommy Hubbard. Men's basketball fans that go way back remember that. And it was really right, right for you know game or two for the conference tournament. He played two games regular season, played in the conference tournament. Almost single-handedly was the reason why the Bucks got to a tournament. So I have seen it happen before that that has come into play. So it, it is curious uh, where they'll go with that. Because she played too much last year to take a red shirt. So she does still have it for this year if they want to use it. It's just well, and and you don't even have to claim a me- if she didn't play at all this year, you don't have to go through all the medical stuff. Right, you no. just take a regular red exactly. and don't have to worry. And then if she needed a sixth year, you could go back and turn that one into a medical if need be. But I, I, I would be shocked if she played. I guess just just the way things are going. But I, I absolutely see where you're coming from. And like, is this an opportunity to where? We need an extra punch down the stretch that could get us a championship. How many chances Jackie, do you get? Are you on board with it? How many exactly. chances do you get? Right? I it, mean, I don't, have they been to a Wofford has ever? not had essentially any Division One success at the That's highest level yeah, in so terms of tournament championships, team. getting to the NCAA's anything. So if you've been waiting for twenty plus years like this program oh, yeah. has, and you're faced with that decision, you also have to think about the student athletes' wellness. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that come into play, but. She is a major difference maker, and to add her, another piece to an already stacked offensive lineup, wow, I mean, it, it could be very dangerous in the conference tournament and going for. And you mentioned the example that, that you used with Tommy Hubbard. I mean, that, that's what you can do. You know, that's the difference that it can make if it's truly a top-end talent, as she is. So, anyway, in terms of the game tomorrow, if she plays, I'd be, I guess, surprised just considering all the things that – go into a decision like that but regardless of if she plays or not you still have to make sure to step outside the arc not give chloe wanink and deja green and really anyone on that roster open looks from outside you have to play together we saw what could happen on the offensive end with the bucks did against western carolina 17 assists on 23 field goals and then they turn right around and only have six assists it's just the inconsistency that's hurt you have to make sure if you're going to be competitive in this game and try and pull an upset that you do the basics like hold on to the ball, take care of it, go to the line, make sure to draw contact, play aggressive. Just be aggressive and confident because that's one of the things I think this team struggles with as well because not a lot of them have been out there a significant amount of time in their collegiate career. Be confident, believe in your ability, and go get it. Don't play timid. I agree. That's 6.30 airtime against the Wofford Terriers. 7 o'clock will be the tip time. Mike Gallagher on the call on Thursday, Friday. We'll backtrack and we will recap the men's game against citadel women's game versus wofford we'll also preview the weekend's games versus vmi on the men's side and Furman on the women's side when we come back nothing says baseball like valentine's day joe panucci is going to sit down with mike gallagher 
We'll talk about the upcoming Buccaneer baseball season right after this time. Out your word from Sandham Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Life is all about perfect pairings. Sweet and salty, naughty and nice, hot and cold. Well, add instant and jackpot to the list because that's what you'll get when you add Quick Cash to your next Tennessee Cash play. Quick Cash is a simple way to turn one game into two. With Quick Cash, you'll have a chance to win up to $500 instantly right there at the register. Plus, you'll still have a chance to win the Tennessee Cash drawing later. Get the best of both worlds and get twice the fun. It's Quick Cash with Tennessee Cash, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Us the sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network on this Wednesday. We talked with head coach Brad Irwin of ETSU Softball a couple of weeks back. They started their season this past weekend and coming up this weekend, ETSU Baseball and head coach Joe Panucci's squad taking on Toledo. 4 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock starts Friday through Sunday at Thomas Stadium. We will have coverage of that first contest opening night, Valentine's Day. We love baseball. We love that it's on Valentine's Day. It's at 4 o'clock again. Southern Conference Digital Network. I'll be on the call for that. And coach, Thanks for stopping by, as you do every year uh, before the season starts. I'm just going to throw a couple of stats at you before we get into the nuts and bolts of this year. Third best winning percentage for you amongst third-year coaches in the country. There's 19 Division I active coaches. You were 34-21 and 21 last year. Best starts in school history at 14-4, and 21-5, and then 22-6. and six. Seems to me like a pretty successful two years. How would you summarize your first two years here? I think the biggest thing for me is just the opportunity to that I've had and and trying to enjoy the players that we've had and and I feel like the guys that uh, have came through here and continue to come through here are the reason for the success right and you know we have a lot more to go I mean we have to you know we have to do some stuff in the conference and we have to to make some noise when it comes to some certain things that I think we've fallen short on but I do feel like we're going in the right direction and you know those numbers and those stats are more about the players than me I mean I'm just kind of trying to put guys in the right place and uh, they're the ones competing and throwing. I, I stopped doing that a while ago. <laughs> kind of starkly different makeups to your two teams that you've had here. 2018 really was upper class offense to Chris Cooks, Aaron Mayers, uh, Christian Bailey's, Caleb Longley's. And last year it was pretty heavy on upper class pitching, uh, definitely in your weekend rotation. Micah Katzer, Landon Knack, Daniel Sweeney, then in the bullpen, of course, James Giambalvo closed out a lot of games for you. Only Knack is back of those contributors just mentioned with Katzer, Knack, Sweeney, and Giambalvo. Which was more easy to navigate for you, the team that was heavy on upper-class offense or the one with pitching? I have a feeling I know where you're going to go, but I'll let you take me there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think pitching. I think it, it's really hard to if – you, if you can't get anybody out, it's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, obviously, we all want to hit. We all want to score runs. I'm, I'm into that. But at the same time, I feel like um, last year's team was just a little bit easier to navigate because you knew what you were getting on those starts like you know coach Posey and I didn't have to have the conversations of all right well what happens in the second if this goes bad because we kind of felt really comfortable with those guys going six seven at times um and that's a pretty good feeling and then you can kind of rely on some younger guys in the bullpen and and we did uh, and I think that you know they were thrown in the fire a little bit but again that's how this thing turns right so young guys that get thrown in the fire they turn into your guys and then hopefully like that's how the, the rotation goes uh, so the beauty of it all is, is it's kind of one big circle. And um, recruiting and the craziness that we're involved in now of getting guys younger and, and, you know, recruiting guys and trying to figure these guys out and things, you know, I think we're just starting to sort of see kind of how we're trying to build this thing. And I think the beauty of of it is, you know, it's never in the year that you're in. It's kind of how it sort of plays out when you first start. And I've realized that in year three more than anything. And uh, that's, that's kind of the, the fun part to see guys develop and, and, and see things. And that was the same thing with Katz. Like it was great to see him develop from year one to year two. And obviously Sweeney and his story um, and the way that they kind of, he went about his business and how he helped our team out uh, for sure. And, and Nack's another one. I mean, Nack had a, you know, comes out of a Juco and um, you kind of never know what you're getting, but at the same time he came from a, a really good successful juco played at a lot of you know big games and obviously was in junior college world series in, in grand junction and um to add that experience is great but then for him to actually be in the fire and to to take care of business was awesome and, and that's kind of how all right well now it's your turn to to lead the way and he will he'll be fine 
I'm going to take us off track a bit for a second because something you said kind of jogged uh, curiosity for me. You say you have to get players younger now. When are you legitimately getting in touch with guys, and when do you have to start identifying them to be in the legitimate race to getting them to your college? Yeah, it, it's crazy. Uh, you know, it's hard to give you like a you know a Different time. With everybody, it, I'm sure it is. It is. I mean, some people are you know having like sophomores and freshmen are committing and things like that. I mean. You know, occasionally we'll we'll get in the mix with some of them, but I, I think for us it's just trying to, you know, find players we like, find players that are um, going to be suitable for what we're trying to accomplish and go with it. And uh, if they happen to be younger or older, you know, that's okay. And I think that's the balance between the junior college guys and the high school guys. And I think we have a little bit of balance with that. I think, you know, year one it was a little bit more junior college, but we had so many seniors. You know, my first right. year, and we had open roster spots, so it's like we're trying to fill those gaps. Um, but to those guys' credit that are seniors now, I really feel like those guys have done a great job of uh, understanding what we are trying to do and, and being able to lead and being able to, you know, take some punches on the chin and understand. And it's going to be exciting for them to kind of run right in this thing and, and go um, because they've, you know, it's their turn. And it's exciting to see that development. And more or less, I've really seen a lot of it off the field and just the way that they've handled their business and they've handled the young guys and they've kind of tried to get this thing going in the right direction that we're trying to do. Somebody got sticking around from last year. You mentioned Daniel Sweeney. He was your Sunday starter after really for his first couple of years here being a little bit of an afterthought when it came to playing, right? And then he progresses a little bit under you in his uh, junior, I guess redshirt junior year it would have been in your first season here goes to a midweek role and has some success there and then you give him the opportunity on those Sunday starts and really turned into one of the better Sunday starters in the conference if not the region and now you keep him on as director of baseball operations what led to you giving him that opportunity he I mean Sweeney wanted a coach he wanted to be around it and I felt like it was an opportunity to to give him that and and I mean the way he went around his business uh, when he was here He's a great example of that, you know, and I think he's a good example of how um, relationships are made because I think him and Coach Posey had a really good relationship, and obviously they still do now because they work together quite a bit. But I really think the development of how he uh, how he developed had a lot to do with Coach Posey and their relationship and him just trusting in him. And and, uh, and as that trust grew, I mean, you know, he became a pretty good pretty good arm and be able to really anchor that Sunday because Sunday's a big day, uh, and and that's. Uh, it's kind of it's a huge positive for you know for coach Posey it's a huge positive for Sweeney and I think I also think Dan can offer a really 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 um, unique perspective to people because it's like hey I didn't play when I was a freshman right. I, I didn't even really play when I was a sophomore but look at the opportunity I gave and this is the reason why right I had to work I had to put my time in you know I felt like things were bad but they ended up going well I you know i I started some games. I mid. I was in relief in some games, and all of a sudden, look at me. Um, and I think not everybody can do that. Not everybody can can have that story. So I think he offers a unique perspective, and it's cool to have him around. He's he's done a great job. He's going to be a good coach if he wants to stick around and do it. If he's crazy enough to stick around, and do it. <laughs> there are ups and downs to the coaching world, as you know. Uh, and he obviously having the success that he did. You know, like you said, not a lot of people stick around for the amount of time that he needed to to see the field consistently. But perseverance, stick to itiveness, obviously for him paid off. Outside of him, you have Coach Ader, Coach Posey, uh, and Coach Murray back. So the staff outside of that is uh, the same. Talked about offense two years ago, pitching last year. What do you think the calling card is going to be for this team this year? It's identity. What will you be able to rely on? I, I think experience offensively. I think those guys, uh, and defensively at the same time, they've been through it. I think a majority of those guys have had significant at-bats and significant innings. So it's important that they're able to um, – use those experiences for uh, success and, and understand that there's ups and downs and be able to help some of those younger guys and understand that, you know, it's a long year, man. It, you might be rolling early and kind of hit something in the middle or struggling early and, you know, try to gain traction in the middle and, and try to finish strong. And I think those guys have kind of had that. And as long as we can stay healthy, I think we can give ourselves good at-bats one through nine. You know, is it a big power lineup? I don't know if it is. I think it's more of a – you know, solid at-bats, fighting, you know, being able to compete with two strikes and uh, playing good defense. And I think that's on the flip side. It's a younger pitching staff, right? You got Knack who's kind of anchoring it. Uh, 
And besides that, it's just it's a lot of younger guys. It's some junior college guys who's kind of came in and are getting their feet wet first uh, in our program. And then it's it's some freshmen that have stuff and have opportunity to to be successful. But at the same time, like sometimes those tools, you know, have to be utilized. And um, you know, let's see who competes and let's see when their back's against the wall. And you know, there's so many things that can happen. But um, I think it's an exciting group. Uh, I think the depth on the pitching staff is good. It's just different than last year where you knew, all right, well, you're getting six or seven out of one, two, and three. Let's piece this together. I think the depth part of it is significantly different on the other side. One of the guys that, and I had to chuckle when I saw this, is back in your lineup, David Beam. We're talking on a Monday for the Wednesday show on Santos and the Sidekick, two days ahead of what is ETSU baseball's opener against Toledo, 4 p.m. David Beam in the inner squad that you had Sunday, I think walked three times. In the, in the three bats that I saw, and I just I had to give a chuckle because it seems like he's a guy that just does exactly what you said, scraps, battles, fights, and wins at the plate more often than not, um, but gave me a good laugh because it just was so David Beam. He's in mid-season four before the season's even started. Uh, you recruited Tennessee heavy, also Walter State Community College, one of the best JUCOs in the country if you keep up with the JUCO scene. Five of your six freshmen are from Tennessee, three from Farragut High School, which is by some accounts, top 10 high school in the country team-wise. Uh, and three of your five transfers are from Walters State. Was that by design, or is that just kind of how things worked out? And tell us about a few of the guys that you expect to contribute in this class. I can't say it's by design, but I tell you what, it's nice to have people that have been a part of winning cultures and, and have uh, are used to winning. You show up every day, and I know what I'm getting. I know that I'm getting a winner. I know that I'm getting a competitor. Uh, and I'm used to winning, right? I think that's super important. And I think, you know, the guys at Farragut and, and uh, those high school guys and what they've accomplished under, you know, uh, under Coach Buckner there, I, I think it's so – it's great to see because it's like, hey, let me get that guy in our program. Man, he's used to winning. He's used to going out there and playing competitive games. And he they're playing for state championships. Um, you know, and Walters is the same thing. I mean – you know what they've what they've created there. It's been awesome, and to be able to have guys that are that are used to playing um, well into the summer. I mean, you know, if you're in baseball, you start when it's cold, and you're playing in the summer, you're doing a good thing. So right. if you're playing in June, that's that's where you need to be. And I think those guys have have done that, uh, which is which is kind of uh, if you have a crystal ball, I think that's what you'd like, right? You be get around people that are that are used to going in the right direction that you're trying to go. A couple of those guys from Farragut, Ashton King, he is someone that it seems like is going to compete for some time. Landon Smitty, I know, has kind of been in the mix when it comes to the back end of that weekend rotation. Owen Kovacs, the other from Farragut, and then Walter State just heavy on the roster. Of course, Landon Knack is also a guy that you brought in from Walter right. State, and yep. as you said, he was in the Juco College World Series. Um, what two years ago and pitching in some really big spots and clearly his success translated so nice to have more guys in from that program night one we get a treat it's knack and jackson grew behind the plate your starting battery i mean could be one pro prospect to another i think there's plenty of steam behind knack with him being named that number 11 uh division one uh college baseball pitcher by d1baseball.com out of their top 150 and then jackson greer of course we know has progressed each year it seemed like last year he really took a step from maybe just trying to pull everything for a home run to using all fields, spraying it all over the place and having a more mature approach at the plate. Outside of the starting battery night one, it seems to me like spots two and three in the weekend rotation are the biggest question marks in terms of where the season could either excel or you may have some work to do going into conference season uh, in those two and three spots. Am I correct in my assertion there? Or are there other areas you want to point out? No, I think you're right on. I think you're right on. I think that, you know, I mean, there's some, there's a reason that Knack and, and Greer are are good players because they work hard. You know, they have some ability, but they truly work and they truly care, and I think that that's important. And, and I feel like that's trickled down to a lot of guys, and I think some of these younger guys see that, and it's understanding, like, the work that they put in, like what they're doing in the off season, what they're doing over Christmas break. You know, are you eating grandma's cookies or are you still <laughs> kind of getting in the weight room? And, and I can tell you that, you know, Knack did that, you know. Um, so those are those – are, uh, two guys that are great examples for for some people uh, on this club, but at the same time, I do think that um, you know some of the other spots that are open on the mound. Like I said before, um, they could be up for grabs, and that's the beauty of this, right? That's the beauty of playing. Well, it may be a beauty or a curse. I don't know. Playing fifty six games is 
you know, there's sometimes that's great. And sometimes you're looking up going, holy cow, that's a long year. But at the same time, you get a chance to figure a lot out, you know, over, over four weeks and, uh, you know, with the midweek games and, and, and all that stuff. I mean, it's a lot of baseball games prior to your first conference, but it sneaks up on you. It comes fast. And I think you're able to figure some things out. Like, you know, who's going to be that guy and, and how they're going to do things and who's going to go about their business the right way when things are good and things are not good. And when adversity shows up, you know, who's going to be able to, to battle through that. And you're a baseball guy, so you know, as well as I do is, you know, this game is full of adversity, even when you're playing well, like, you know, you could throw a great pitch and somebody calls a ball, you could barrel up a ball and you just lined out to the third baseman. But how are you reacting to that? And I think when you're not in those spots, when you haven't been in those spots, it takes time. It takes time for them to figure that out. Um, but the development of that is what's so fun to watch. 29 non-conference games, 19 of them before conference play starts, 24 conference games, 53 in total. And it all starts this Friday, two days from now. Toledo, the opponent, 4 p.m., Thomas Stadium. Coach, good luck. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. Head coach Joe Panucci ahead of his third year with ETSU Baseball. Back with more on Sanderson the Psychic and the Buccaneer Sports Network. An inside look at Buccaneer basketball is back this winter with the ETSU Radio Coaches Show. Monday nights all season long, Steve Forbes and Brittany Azell join Voice of the Bucks Jay Sandoz live from Wild Wing Cafe at 71 Wilson Avenue in downtown Johnson City. It's a 6 o'clock start as Forbes and Azell field your questions, reflect on results, and preview upcoming action. The ETSU Radio Coaches Show every Wednesday at 6 right here on WXSMAM 640, The Sports Monster. Is the music over? Top 25. 2-5. College Insider Mid-Major Top 25, Gonzaga, number two one. Five. We have given the rest of the WCC chances to prove they can hang with Gonzaga. They keep disappointing. San Francisco did get within four on the first of the month, but the two teams we turned to, me with Santa Clara, a 15-point loss, and U.S. St. Mary's, a 30-point loss this past Saturday, have disappointed. Still number one, Gonzaga. UNI, a 12-point win over Valpo and a 10-point win over Drake this past week. Up one spot in the poll, a one-game lead in the Valley over Southern Illinois, who have won seven in a row. February 23rd, that battle for a regular season championship. Loyola in the running also two games back. They've got UNI Saturday and can really re-enter that race. ETSU, the Bucks, the number one SoCon team in the poll again. Furman 7, UNCG 10. The Southern Conference pretty consistent so far this season in the College Insider Mid-Major Top 25. No fourth team in sight. And so I'd like you to compare the SoCon last year to the SoCon this year. Does the fact that Wofford, Western, Mercer, and Chad are battling for fourth instead of there being a for sure fourth team help or hurt the league? You know, it's interesting because I think you look at it and the top four teams are clearly head and shoulders above everybody else last year, but now you've got some other teams kind of hanging around, so there's not as many bottom barrel teams. So it's an interesting study, I think, that you can use sample size at the end of the season to go back, look at last year's, go back, look at this year's, and see would you rather have one through four just head and shoulders above? Would you rather have one through three head and shoulders above but have a solid four, five, six, and possibly a seventh as far as league play goes. Now, the problem with the seventh one is Mercer took a while to figure it out. But I think the more wins you get as a league, the better. My guess off the top of my head is last year's top four is better. I don't know that to be factual uh, until the end of the season. We take a look at the final rankings. We take a look and see what is or isn't. But I would like to go back next year. at the end of this year, spend some time and, and dive in in the off season and look at all last year's metrics and how that sort of went for each team. Because if you looked at it, top four teams last year, you know, ETSU was the only team that didn't play in NCAA or NIT. And so, you're, you know, even getting multiple teams in NIT is something that Southern Conference hasn't done in a while. Now you're still talking about there was a chance they could have got two teams in the NCAA tournament if Wofford didn't win. Now you're still looking at there's a chance to get two teams in the NCAA tournament there. 
if that's the case, is there just one NIT team, or if it was last year, would you have been able, let's just say, would ETSU have gotten in the NIT if Wofford would have lost the title game and still got an at-large bid, would Furman and ETSU then gone to the NIT? Be curious to see. But I, I think my initial guess, last year. Doomsday scenario then. Should UNCG run the table, win the Southern Conference postseason, or ETSU and Furman NIT teams? Uh, well, are you saying would UNCG win the regular season? They would. If they win the regular season, then you're talking about getting at-larges to the NIT, ETSU, Furman. My guess ETSU would be a lock for at least the at-large NIT for the simple reason they would still be on the bubble um, of the NCAA tournament. Uh, if not, maybe sneaking in the NCAA tournament. And then I would assume Furman at that point, unless they had a couple bad losses, would be an NIT team as well. So then you're talking about the exact same results as last year. Yes. So then it will Again, be interesting to see it, the postseason rankings. I mean, it depends if, ET, if, if ETSU – I mean, the hard part is is because you would have ETSU not win the regular season, which means I'd have to lose a couple of games. Yeah, in my scenario, you and ETSU is not an at-large team in my scenario. Right. To then, the NCAA. Then, then, yes, it's exactly the same scenario. Yale, number four, beaten by Harvard in a wild way. Crimson up four, five seconds left. Azar Swain, a three with two seconds left. Banks it in from 30 feet, is fouled. Misses the oh, free throw. I did throw. see this. Did misses see the free throw. Time runs out. Somehow Yale steadies the ship the next day, though. Remember the Ivy League's Friday, Saturday. Defeating Dartmouth by 18 Saturday from number two last week. They slipped to number four. What in the world Harvard was doing fouling, being anywhere close to someone up four, dribbling down the court with two seconds left and hoisting a three? I have absolutely no idea. And then you did the hard part by hitting a three and getting fouled and not finishing it off with the free throw. Can you imagine the feeling? That would just be a devastating, empty, chasmous, uh, emotional, just destructive crawl in a hole and don't come out until the next game uh, for that young man that missed that. We do hope that uh, he does emerge victorious in his next games coming up. I'm rooting for him now. I don't even know who he was. Azar Swain, never heard of him, but uh, Azar Swain, I am now a big fan, even though you just had your worst moment in your life. St. Mary's, number five, uh, trash. Down one spot this it's week. Garbage. Six, Should Liberty. Be Should be more. After their horrid 30. couple of games Gotta three be weeks 30. back. Don't, no, we're not talking about Sorry. the West Coast Conference. Okay. They've calmed things down. Has Liberty winning handily over Kennesaw State, Florida Gulf Coast, Jacksonville, and North Alabama. Only one of those games separated by less than 15, but because the A-Sun is so bad, still at number six this week. Furman already touched on them. Matchup with ETSU one week away at Freedom Hall. They're at number seven. BYU trash up two spots this week. Stephen F. Austin, the team that has seemingly caused Mike Krzyzewski to lose his mind. Let me get your take on this. They're down one spot this week. Since Stephen F. Austin pulled off the upset at Cameron Indoor, Coach K has screamed his own student section, claimed retroactively that he was sick when the Blue Devils lost to the Lumberjacks, ripped the NCAA for the one-and-done rule, and then also ripped the NCAA for college basketball, not generating as much interest as football. Is Stephen F. Austin the team that started the implosion of Coach K? I think he's just getting senile. Or has he been imploding for a while? He, he's just getting senile. One think, day at I, a time. I, I think he's he's slowly turned into the get-off-my-lawn guy. I think that's what we're seeing from Coach K. I mean, we, we did have a good laugh that, you know, if he was going to lose uh, – since he lost the Stephen F. Austin game, was he going to do what he did when he had the back surgery where two years later he asked if the assistant coach could take the losses instead of him, <laughs> uh, which is funny because he obviously wasn't going to ask for that if they won, but he asked since they lost, could that come off his record? And NCAA obliged, so I don't know what he's complaining about. Eight straight wins for Stephen F. Austin and a chance to avenge their last loss against Texas A&M Corpus Christi tonight and maintain or extend their three-game lead in the Southland. UNCG, number 10, at home against Western Carolina tonight. Do the Spartans have a problem with the Catamounts? No, I don't think they will. I think it'll be a 12- to 15-point victory. New Mexico State, number 11, still number 11 this week. 13 straight wins, still undefeated in the WAC, three games ahead of Cal Baptist. Number 12, Wright State. Also stay where they are from last week. After a loss to Green Bay, 92-89, to two Sundays back, they put up 98 and 83 in a pair of Horizon League wins. Northern Kentucky, a game behind in that conference. That matchup, the final day of the Horizon League regular season on the 28th. That'll be a fun one. Number 13, Vermont. They fly up the chart this week, five spots. They've won nine in a row, including their last game against Hartford. Ryan Davis, a layup with four seconds left to win it for the Catamounts, 69 to 68. Big one because it leaves Vermont two games clear of Stony Brook for the league lead. Flip that result, and Stony Brook and Hartford would be tied one game behind Vermont, but not to be the Catamounts comfortable in America East. Number 14, Little Rock, still charging, putting up 90-plus in their last two games, a seven-point win over App State and a three-point win over Arkansas State. 
a three-game lead in the Sun Belt now. A lot of these conferences we're talking about have their races essentially decided, and obviously that helps ETSU a ton that in the Sun Belt, Little Rock kind of running away with it. Yeah, and they've had a couple big wins. I think I saw a crazy stat where two weeks ago, because we didn't go over it, but two weeks ago, Appalachian State shot 65% from the floor. Wow. It was like 58% from three, 85% from the line, and still lost at Little Rock. Just like just stupid numbers. And so Little Rock continues to win. Uh, certainly big help to ETSU. And, again, they got a couple guys that were eligible that didn't get to play against ETSU. And so they've improved their roster since then. They also have an opportunity to um, – when they come back next year to be a solid game now because, again, they return a lot of players off that piece. Let's see. App State, 72%. From the floor. From the floor. (laughs) 63% from deep and 10 of 14 from the line, and they lost by seven. How about that? That is unbelievable. On the road, right? When that on the road? On the road. They shot 72 from two, 63. 72%. Or percent 70, 72 from the floor, overall. not from Se- two, from that's the right. floor. Yeah, 72 overall, 63 from three, and still got beat. Isn't that incredible? Little Rock. Ni- I saw that. I almost fell out of my chair. Little Rock, 19 points off turnovers. That's one of the things still, that helped them somehow. You can give them 1,000 points off turnovers. I still wouldn't think that would happen. Get a victory over a team that shoots 72% right. from the Sorry. floor. Sorry. Akron, number 15. The Zips lose back-to-back games against Buffalo and Kent State by four combined points two weeks ago, but have the train back in the tracks with wins over Eastern Michigan and Bowling Green this past week with the win over Bowling Green. Akron now just a half game behind in the Mac East. Still plenty to be decided in the Mid-American, so they're not one of the leagues that has everything wrapped up with a bow already. On the other side, the Mac West, Northern Illinois, a half game up on Ball State. So the East and the West, and I am a Mac expert, as we remember from the last top 25 in the mid-major poll. Uh, the Mac championship game? Uh, the Mac is going to be one of the more competitive mid-major leagues, and I will break it down for you in depth on a segment I will like to call Mike Meets the Mac. Okay. And it's probably defeated by the Mac. Number 16, Murray State. Slips three spots, splitting their week with Belmont and Tennessee State. The loss to Belmont brings the Bruins within two games of Murray State. Eastern Kentucky also there, and Austin P one game behind. Tomorrow night, maybe the biggest game of the mid-major week, a battle for the top spot in the Ohio Valley. The Racers and the Governors mixing it up. Bowling Green just mentioned them in the Mac conversation. Down two spots after the loss to Akron, but still on top of the Mac East. Winthrop. Your favorite conference, the Big South, also known as the SoCon's little brother. That makes the poll this week the only team from the Big South to do so. Up three spots, but this poll was before they lost to Radford. That's what I was going to say. That's a, that's a bad loss. Well, well it's, it's not, not a bad awful, loss. It's not an awful loss. I, let me just say that. But they were down at one point 24, I think. Wow. Got it to two and lose by four, but they, they were down healthy because I actually stopped paying attention to it at one point. Big win for the Highlanders to pull within a game and a half of the top spot. They're really the only two that are in that race. First loss in the Big South for Winthrop, snapping their 14-game winning streak. Still, decent chance at a tight race there. Colgate out of the Patriot League. Ho-hum for the Raiders. Two games clear of Boston U for the league lead because they beat them Monday by 16 on the road. If the result would have gone the other way, we would have had a tie at the top. Instead, it's Colgate solidifying their stranglehold on the inside position for the league regular season title. Belmont, unranked last week, mentioned them in the talk with Murray State. Not only did they beat the Racers, also yeah, beat Austin P, yeah. peaking at the right time as they're back in the league regular season race. They, they actually, uh, the way their schedule works, kind of flipped. So, so they had played at Murray, at Austin P, took two losses. One at uh, Tennessee Tech, which they struggled, which was shocking. Won at Jacksonville State, and then quickly they turned around and played Murray and Austin P again, but managed at home to pick up two big victories. So they might be peaking at the right time as well. Hofstra lost two games at the end of January to Charleston and Delaware, but wins over Drexel, Elon, and William and Mary for the Pride, who they lost to by 27 earlier this year. Hofstra did to William and Mary, beat them by 23 this time around, about a 50 point flip. The two teams that beat Hofstra, Charleston and Delaware, looming. Half game behind the Pride are Charleston and a full game behind our Delaware. Tomorrow, Charleston and Hofstra in their return matchup. Austin P just talked about them. Paralysis to Belmont. Also, Tennessee State tumbles them down the ranking five spots. Big bounce back chance tomorrow, though. Pacific, number 23, unranked last week, but they're in the West Coast Conference, so they are trash. 24, Harvard, down one spot in the Ivy League. Should be two wins, one against Cornell and one against Columbia as they try to take advantage of the Yale-Princeton matchup with one of the teams guaranteed to drop a game. Those two tied for the Ivy League lead. And finally... Northern Illinois, the Huskies unranked last week. They edged Kent State, San Francisco, and South Dakota State for the final spot in the College Insider Mid-Major Top 25. The MAC West leaders by a half game won't be in the poll next week, though, because they lost to Ball State last night. 
Well, it'll be interesting, too, because I think uh, Pacific has just snuck in Trash. There. I know you yeah, but they get Gonzaga, so that's going to be short. Oh, that's short. Oh, we'll call uh, the West Coast Conference the West Coast Gonzagas from now and, on. Uh, and they got St. Mary's as well. So, all right, so Pacific and Damon Stottlemyre may be out of there pretty quickly. Three new teams near the bottom of the pole in Belmont, Pacific, and Northern Illinois. The SoCon still with three teams in the top 25, and the West Coast Conference is... <laughs> Trash! This week, UNCG and Western tonight, Murray State and Austin P. Tomorrow night, Charleston and Hofstra at 7 tomorrow for the CAA lead. Friday, Princeton and Yale, both 5-1 in the Ivy League, duking it out for the conference lead. Loyola, Chicago, and UNI Saturday as the Ramblers try to close in on the Panthers. I also think Sneaky Game uh, uh, chat at Furman, and I think UNCG at Mercer could be a sneaky one as well. Mercer is all now with Hoffman, but they always seem to sneak out a win versus UNCG. And so we'll see maybe if Greg Gary can keep that going in Mercer University. Greg Gary. All right, that'll do it. We will recap Wednesday and Thursday's game on Friday. We'll preview the weekend's games. And also we want to shout out Joe Panucci, his team. We'll play on Valentine's Day Friday, too. Very special Valentine's Day where we'll talk about who we have our sports crush on. Sports we love, baseball. Are we talking about who we have sports crushes on? That's yeah. a great segment. I'm yeah. in. I'm in. Okay. All right, more Santa sidekick. Friday. Guess what? Buccaneers World Network. See ya.